0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales. A young boy, a son of a captain, with a looming death sentence hovering over his innocent self, and guardians that both teach, love, and prepare young Fune for his lifetime of adventures. Yes, folks, I have for you Irish fairy tales, and today is the boyhood of Fune, where I read chapters 1 through to 6 today, and the remainder on the Friday. So, the last Irish folktale, Tuan Mac of Kyril, had descriptive language of what it felt like to be the animals that he reincarnated into, what it felt like to be a boar, the strength, the determination, the toughness, and the fear he had as an aging elk in a forest of wolves. Now we learn and discover... What it feels like to be a child in those days, a hunted child, a child with an unknown burden, the experiences of young Fune. Turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and let's listen to some fairy tales. The Boyhood of Fune, Chapter 1 He was a king, a seer, and a poet. He was a lord with a manifold and great train. He was our magician, our knowledgeable one, our soothsayer. All that he did was sweet with him. And however ye deem my testimony of fune excessive, and although ye hold my praising overstrained, nevertheless, and by the king that is above me, he was three times better than all I say. Saint Patrick. Fionn, F-I-O-N-N, pronounced Fune to rhyme with Tune, got his first training among women. There is no wonder in that, for it is the pup's mother teaches it to fight. And women know that fighting is a necessary art, although men pretend there are others that are better. These were the women druids, Bovmol and Lea Luatra. It will be wondered why his own mother did not train him in the first natural savageries of existence, But she could not do it. She could not keep him with her for dread of the clan Morna. The sons of Morna had been fighting and intriguing for a long time to oust her husband, Uael, from the captaincy of the Fuana of Ireland. And they had ousted him at last by killing him. It was the only way they could get rid of such a man. But it was not an easy way. For what Fune's father did not know in arms could not be taught to him even by Morna. Still, the hound that can wait will catch our hair at last, and even Menannon sleeps. Fionn's mother was beautiful, long-haired Murin, as she's always referred to. She was the daughter of Tegu, the son of Nuada from Faerie, and her mother was Ethlin. That is, her brother was Lug, of the long hand himself, and with a god and such a god. For brother, we may marvel that she could have been in dread of Mourner or his sons, or of anyone. But women have strange loves, strange fears, and these are so bound up with one another that the thing which is presented to us is not often the thing that is to be seen. However, it may be, when Uael died, Murin got married again to the king of Kerry. She gave the child to Bovmol, and Leah Luatra to Rhea, and we may be sure that she gave injunctions with him and many of them. The youngster was brought to the woods of Slave Bloom, and was nursed there in secret. It is likely the women were fond of him, for other than Fune, there was no life about them. He would be their life, and their eyes may have seemed as twin benedictions resting on the small fair head. He was fair-haired, and it was for his fairness that he was afterwards called Fune. But at this period he was known as Diemni, They saw the food they put into his little frame reproduce itself lengthways and sideways in tough inches, and in springs and energies that crawled at first, and then toddled, and then ran. He had birds for playmates, but all the creatures that live in a wood must have been his comrades. There would have been, for little few, long hours of lonely sunshine, when the world seemed just sunshine and sky. There would have been hours as long as existence passed, like a shade among shadows, in the multitudinous tappings of rain that dripped from leaf to leaf in the wood, and slipped so to the ground. He would have known little snaky paths narrow enough to be filled by his own small feet or a goat's, and he would have wondered where they went, and have marveled again to find that wherever they went, they came at last.' through loops and twists of the branchy wood, to his own door. He may have thought of his own door as the beginning and end of the world, whence all things went and whither all things came. Perhaps he did not see the lark for a long time, but he would have heard him, far out of sight in the endless sky, thrilling and thrilling until the world seemed to have no other sound but that clear sweetness. And what a world it was to make that sound. Whistles and chirps, Coo's and calls and croaks would have grown familiar to him, and he could at last have told which brother of the Great Brotherhood was making the noise he heard at any moment. The wind, too. He would have listened to its thousand voices as it moved in all seasons and all moods. Perhaps a horse would stray into the thick screen about his home, and would look as solemnly on Fune as Fune did on it. Or, coming suddenly on him, the horse might stare. All a cock with eyes and ears and nose, one long, drawn facial extension. Ear he turned and bounded away, with manes all over him and hooves all under him, and tails all around him. A solemn-nosed, stern-eyed crow would amble and stamp in his wood to find a flyless shadow. Or a strayed sheep would poke its gentle muzzle through leaves. A boy, he might think, as he stared on a staring horse. A boy cannot wag his tail to keep the flies off, and that lack may have saddened him. He may have thought that a cow can snort and be dignified at the one moment, and that timidity is comely in a sheep. He would have scolded the jackdaw, and tried to out-whistle the throttle, and wondered why his pipe got tied when the blackbirds didn't. There would be flies to be watched, slender atoms in yellow gauze that flew, and filmy specks that flitted and sturdy, thick-ribbed brutes that pounced like cats and bit like dogs, and flew like lightning. There would be much to see and remember and compare, and there would be always his two guardians. The flies change from second to second. One cannot tell if this bird is a visitor or an inhabitant, and a sheep is just sister to a sheep. But the women were as rooted as the house itself." CHAPTER TWO Were his nurses comely or harsh-looking? Fune would not know. This was the one who picked him up when he fell, and that was the one that patted the bruise. This one said, mind you don't tumble in the well, and that one, mind the little knees among the nettles. But he did tumble, and record that the only notable thing about a well is that it is wet, and as for nettles, if they hit him, he hit back. He slashed into them with a stick and brought them low. There was nothing in wells or nettles. Only women dreaded them. One patronized women and instructed them and comforted them, for they were afraid about one. They thought that one should not climb a tree. Next Next week, they said at last, you may climb this one. And next next week, lived at the end of the world. But the tree that was climbed was not worthwhile. When it had been climbed twice. There was a bigger one nearby. There were trees that no one could climb, with vast shadow on one side and vaster sunshine on the other. It took a long time to walk around them, and you could not see their tops. It was pleasant to stand on a branch that swayed and sprung, and it was good to stare at an impenetrable roof of leaves and then climb into it. How wonderful the loneliness was up there. When he looked down, there was an undulating floor of leaves, green and green and greener, to a very blackness of greenness. And when he looked up, there were leaves again, green and less green and not green at all, up to a very snow and blindness of greenness. And above and below and around there was sway and motion, the whisper of leaf on leaf, and the eternal silence, to which one listened, at which one tried to look. When he was six years of age, his mother, beautiful, long-haired Murn, came to see him. She came secretly, for she feared the sons of mourner, and she had paced through lonely places in many countries before she reached the hut in the wood, and the cot where he lay with his fists shut and sleep gripped in them. He awakened, to be sure. He would have one ear that would catch an unusual voice, one eye that would open, however sleepy the other one was. She took him in her arms and kissed him and she sang a sleepy song until the small boy slept again. We may be sure that the eye that could stay open stayed open that night as long as it could, and that the one ear listened to the sleepy song until the song got too low to be heard, until it was too tender to be felt vibrating along those soft arms, until Fune was asleep again. With a new picture in his little head, and a new notion to ponder on, The mother of himself. His own mother. But when he awakened, she was gone. She was going back secretly in dread of the Sons of Mourna, slipping through gloomy woods, keeping away from habitations, getting by desolate and lonely ways to her lord in Kerry. Perhaps it was he that was afraid of the Sons of Mourna, and perhaps she loved him. Chapter 3 the women druids, his guardians, belonged to his father's people. Bovmol was Uel's sister, and consequently Fune's aunt. Only such a blood tie could have bound them to clan Baishni, for it is not easy, having moved in the world of court and camp, to go hide with a baby in a wood, and to live as they must have lived, in terror. What stories they would have told the child, of the sons of Morna, of Morna himself, the huge-shouldered, stern-eyed, violent Connachman, and of his sons, young Goldmore MacMorna, in particular. As huge-shouldered as his father, as fierce in the onset, but merry-eyed when the other was grim, and bubbling with laughter that made men forgive even his butcheries. Of Conan male MacMornan, his brother, gruff as a badger, bearded like a boar, bold as a crow, and with a tongue that could manage an insult where another man would not find even a stammer. His boast was that when he saw an open door, he went into it, and when he saw a closed door, he went into it. When he saw a peaceful man, he insulted him, and when he met a man who was not peaceful, he insulted him. There was Gara Duff MacMorna, and Savage Art Og, who cared as little for their own skins as they did for the next man's, and Garra, must have been rough indeed to have earned in that clan the name of the rough MacMorna. There were others, wild conaxmen, all as untamable and unaccountable as their own wonderful countryside. Fune would have heard much of them, and it is likely that he practiced on a nettle at taking the head off Gaul, and that he hunted a sheep from cover in the implacable manner he intended later on for Conan swearer. But it is of Ual, Macbyshny, he would have heard most. With what a dilation of spirit the ladies would have told tales of him, Fune's father, how their voices would have become a chant as feat was added to feat glory piled on glory. The most famous of men and the most beautiful, the hardest fighter, the easiest giver, the kingly champion, the chief of the Fionn Fune, Funen nacherin Tales of how he had been waylead and got free, of how he had been generous and got free, of how he had been angry and went marching with the speed of an eagle, and the direct onfall of a storm, while in front and at the sides, angled from the prow of his terrific advance, were fleeing multitudes, who did not dare to wait and scarce had time to run, and how at last, when the time came to quell him, nothing less than the whole might of Ireland was sufficient for that great downfall. We may be sure that on these adventures, Fune was his father's, going step from step with the long-striding hero and heartening him mightily. Chapter 4 He was given good training by the women in running and leaping and swimming. One of them would take a thorn switch in their hand, and Fune would take a thorn switch in his hand, and each would try to strike the other running around a tree. You had to go fast to keep away from the switch behind, and a small boy feels a switch. A switch is a small branch with thistles. Fune would run his best to get away from that prickly stinger, and how he would run when it was his turn to deal the strokes. With reason to, for his nurses had suddenly grown implacable. They pursued him with a savagery which he could not distinguish from hatred, and they swished him well whenever they got the chance. Fune learned to run. After a while he could buzz around a tree like a maddened fly, and oh the joy when he felt himself drawing from the switch and gaining from behind on its bearer. How he strained and panted to catch on that pursuing person, and pursue her and get his own switch into action. He learned to jump by chasing hares in a bumpy field. Up went the hare and up went Fune, and away with the two of them, hopping and popping across the field. If the hare turned while Fune was after her, it was a switch for Fune. So that in a while it did not matter to Fune which way the hare jumped, for he could jump that way too. Long ways, sideways, or bore ways. Fune hopped where the hare hopped, and at last, he was the owner of a hop that any hare would give an ear for. He was taught to swim, and it may be that his heart sank when he fronted the lesson. The water was cold. It was deep. One could see the bottom. Leagues below. Millions of miles below. A small boy might shiver as he stared into that wink and blink and twink of brown pebbles and murder. And these implacable women threw him in. Perhaps he would not go in at first. He may have smiled at them and coaxed them and hung back. It was a leg and an arm gripped then. A swing for Fune. And out and away with him, plop and flop for him. Down into chill, a deep death for him, and up with a splutter, with a sob, with a gasp at everything that caught nothing, with a wild flurry, with a raging despair, with a bubble and a snort, as he was hauled again down, and down and down, and found as suddenly that he had been hauled out. Fune learned to swim until he could pop into the water like an otter and slide through it like an eel. He used to try and chase a fish, the way he chased hares in the bumpy field, but there are terrible spurts in a fish. It's maybe that a fish cannot hop, but he gets there in a flash, and he isn't there in another. Up or down, sideways or endways, it is all one to a fish. He goes and is gone. He twists this way and disappears the other way. He is over you when he ought to be under you, and is biting your toe when you thought you were biting his tail. You cannot catch a fish by swimming, but you can try. And Fune tried. He got a grudging commendation from the terrible women when he was able to slip noiselessly in the tide. Swim under water to where a wild duck was floating and grip it by the leg. Ack! said the duck. And he disappeared before he had time to get the ack out of him. So the time went, and Fune grew long and straight and tough like a sapling, limber as a willow, And with the flirt and spring of a young bird, one of the ladies may have said, He is shaping very well, my dear. And the other replied, As is the morose privilege of an art, He will never be as good as his father. But their hearts must have overflowed in the night, in the silence, in the darkness, When they thought of the living swiftness they had fashioned, and that dear fair head. Chapter 5 One day, his guardians were agitated. They held confabulations at which Fune was not permitted to assist. A man who had passed by that morning had spoken to them. They fed the man, and during his feeding, Fune had been shooed from the door, as if he were a chicken. When the stranger took his road, the women went with him a short distance. As they passed, the man lifted a hand and bent a knee to Fune. My soul to you, young master, he said, And as he said it, Fune knew that he could have the man's soul, or his boots, or his feet, or anything that belonged to him. When the women returned, they were mysterious and whispery. They chased Fune into the house, and when they got him in, they chased him out again. They chased each other around the house for another whisper. They calculated things by the shape of clouds, by lengths of shadows, by the flight of birds, by two flies racing on a flat stone by throwing bones over their left shoulders, and by every kind of trick and game and chance that you could put a mind to. They told Fune he must sleep in a tree that night, and they put him under bonds not to sing or whistle or cough or sneeze until the morning. Fune did sneeze. He never sneezed so much in his life. He sat up in his tree and nearly sneezed himself out of it. Flies got up his nose, two at a time, one up each nostril and his head nearly fell off the way he sneezed. You are doing that on purpose, said a savage whisper from the foot of the tree. But Fionn was not doing it on purpose. He tucked himself into a fork the way he had been taught, and he passed the crawliest, tickliest night he had ever known. After a while, he did not want to sneeze. He wanted to scream, and in particular, he wanted to come down from the tree, but he did not scream. Nor did he leave the tree. His word was passed, and he stayed in his tree as silent as a mouse and as watchful until he fell out of it. In the morning a band of travelling poets were passing, and the women handed Fune over to them. This time they could not prevent him overhearing. The sons of Mourner, they said. And Fune's heart might have swelled with rage, but that it was already swollen with adventure. And also the expected was happening. Behind every hour of their day and every moment of their lives lay the sons of Mourner. Fune had run after them as deer, he jumped after them as hares, he dived after them as fish. They lived in the house with him. They sat at the table and ate his meat. One dreamed of them, and they were expected in the morning as the sun is. They knew only too well that the son of Uweil was living, and they knew that their own sons would know no ease while that son lived. For they believed in those days that like breeds like, and that the son of Uweil would be Uel with additions. His guardians knew that their hiding place must at last be discovered, and that when it was found, the sons of Mourner would come. They had no doubt of that, and every action of their lives was based on that certainty. For no secret can remain secret, Some broken soldier tramping home to his people will find it out. A herder seeking his stray cattle or a band of traveling musicians will get wind of it. How many people will move through even the remotest wood in a year? The crows will tell a secret if no one else does. And under a bush behind a clump of bracken, what eyes may there not be? But if your secret is legged like a young goat, if it is tongued like a wolf, one can hide a baby but you cannot hide a boy. He will rove unless you tie him to a post, and he will whistle then. The sons of Morna came, but there were only two grim women, living in a lonely hut to greet them. We may be sure they were well greeted. One can imagine Ghaul's merry stare taking in all that could be seen. Conan's grim eye raking the women's faces, while his tongue raked them again, the rough Macmorna shouldering here and there in the house and about it, with maybe a hatchet in his hand, and Art Og coursing further afield and vowing that if the cub was there, he would find him. But Fune was gone. He was away, bound with his band of poets for the Galties. It is likely they were junior poets come to the end of a year's training, and returning to their own province to see again the people at home, and to be wondered at and exclaimed at as they exhibited bits of their knowledge which they had brought from the great schools. They would know tags of rhyme and tricks about learning which few would hear of, and now and again, as they rested in a glade or by the brink of a river, they might try their lessons over. They might even refer to the Ogham Wands, on which the first words of their tasks and the opening lines of poems were cut, and it is likely that, being new to these things, they would talk of them to a youngster. And, thinking that his wits could be no better than their own, they might have explained to him how Ogham was written. But it is far more likely that his women guardians had already started him at those lessons. Still, this band of young bards would have been of infinite interest to Fune, not on account of what they had learned, but because of what they knew. All the things that he should have known as by nature... The look, the movement, the feeling of crowds, the shouldering and intercourse of man with man, the clustering of houses, and how people bore themselves in and about them. The movement of armed men, and the homecoming look of wounds, tales of births, and marriages and deaths, the chase with its multitudes of men and dogs, all the noise, the dust, the excitement of mere living. These, to fune, new come, from leaves and shadows, and the dipple and dapple of a wood, would have seemed wonderful, and the tales they would have told of their masters, their looks, fads, severities, sillinesses, would have been wonderful also. That band should have chatted like a rookery. They must have been young. For one time, a Leinsterman, a great robber named Fiakul Mac Cona, and he killed the poets. He chopped them up and chopped them down. He did not leave one poet e'en of them all he put them out of the world and out of life, so that they stopped being, and no one could tell where they went or what had really happened to them. And it is a wonder, indeed, that one can do that to anything, let alone a band. If they were not youngsters, the bold robber could not have managed them all. Or, perhaps, he too had a band, although the record does not say so. But kill them he did, and they died that way. Fune saw the deed, and his blood may have been cold enough as he watched the great robber coursing the poets as a wild dog rages in a flock, and when his turn came, when they were all dead, and the grim, red-handed man trod at him, Fune may have shivered, but he would have shown his teeth and laid roundly on the monster with his hands. Perhaps he did that, and perhaps for that he was spared. Who are you? roared the staring black mouth with the red tongue squirming in it like a frisky fish. Son of Uel, son of Baishni, quoth hardy Fune, and at that the robber ceased to be a robber. The murderer disappeared. The black-rimmed chasm packed with redfish and precipices changed to something else, and the round eyes that had been popping out of their sockets and trying to bite changed also. There remained our laughing and crying and loving servant who wanted to tie himself into knots, if that would please the son of his great captain. Fune went home on the robber's shoulder, and the robber gave great snorts and made great jumps and behaved like a first-rate horse. For this same robber was the husband of Bovmal, Fune's aunt. He had taken to the wilds when Clan Bisoni was broken, and he was at war with the world that had dared to kill his chief. This concludes chapters 1 through to 6 of The Boyhood of Fune. And there are 14 chapters of this tale in total, and I can't wait to sink my teeth into them. I'll be covering this story off on Friday, so stick with me then, where we discover more about Fune and his adventures. Now I always talk about the descriptions used by the author when it comes to describing the environment. And the people in it. And in the boyhood of Fune, we get to read what it feels like to be a kid back in those days, and what kids got up to in those days. Chasing hare, mimicking deer, being thrown into rivers where you're scared to death, that appeared bottomless, at least to a child. Ah yes, the general threats of the old days. And I can't tell whether the Guardians were good or bad. I mean, they have made him into what he is today, The positives must have outweighed the negatives. Either way, Fionn is going to be one tough kid. And an even tougher adult. So now he's on the back of a robber that just murdered a bunch of poets. Yet another sentence I thought I'd never ever say. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the rest of this story and how it pans out. What do you like about these Irish folktales? As you know for me it's definitely the language. For others it might be the lore surrounding Irish fairy tales. And if any of you out there have an Irish fairy tale that you'd love me to narrate, let me know. Point me in the right direction with an email to storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. I've also been receiving a lot of thank you emails and a lot of awesome feedback via email. Thank you so much. It's always awesome to hear from you lovely listeners. So feel free to reach out to me at any time. And if you're really enjoying the Irish folk tales, there's plenty more on the way. I also have some authors sending me some stories, so I can't wait to narrate those as well. So I'll have plenty of stories to shake it up with next week. And should you have 2 seconds to spare, hop onto iTunes and leave this podcast a review, it lets others know out there that this podcast exists and is worth listening to. And a huge thank you of course to all of you that have done that so far. It means the world to me. So have a creepy Wednesday night. Or deliciously lovely morning. Drink loads of El Grey or any heart beverage. And I'll catch you Friday for the remainder of the Boyhood of Fune. And as always, till next time.